we're going to start to look at these the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, but the whole of the book of Revelation is written uh, to these seven churches uh, that are in uh, Turkey, what we now know as Turkey. Uh, but they also apply to us today, as we'll see. There was a guy called um, uh, Philip Spina, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He was the, uh, sometimes described as the father of uh, German pietism. He died in 1705. It was part of a, it was kind of like a, a renewal movement within the Lutheran Church. And um, a few days before he died, he gave this instruction to his family. During my life, he said, I've sufficiently lamented the condition of the church. Now that I'm about to enter the church triumphant, I wish to be buried in a white coffin as a sign that I'm dying in the hope of a better church on earth as a sign that I'm dying uh, in the hope of a better church on earth. Is, is that a forlorn, is that a forlorn, forlorn hope? That the hope of a better church on earth? See, in, in these opening chapters of, of the book of Revelation, you, you'll find Christians who are persecuted by the state, plagued with false teachers, compromised by the world, when, it, when has it ever been different? In these chapters that we're going to be looking at, you're going to meet smugness, complacency, materialism, dead orthodoxy, hypocrisy. What hope is there of a better church on earth? We're familiar with the Royal Commission. And we're we're kind of shocked and horrified at what the Royal Commission has dug up and, and how the, 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 the testimony of the gospel has been sullied by what's been happening in our churches, some of our churches. What hope is there of a better church on earth? See, what I want to say, and hopefully what you'll see as we go through this series is this, that if there is any hope of a better church on earth, what we need is a new vision of Jesus, a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And that's what the book of Revelation is. Look at how it opens there in verse 1. As is so often the case in the Bible, if you want to know what the book's about, you find the key is actually under the door, under the doormat. It's there in the very first verse of this book, isn't it? See how it opens there in verse 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the word, the word there for revelation is the word apocalypse. We're familiar with that word. We've seen the movies, haven't we? Apocalypse 1, Apocalypse 2. Well, apocalypse simply means an unveiling. That's what this book is. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation, see it, verse 1, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. See, we always run into difficulty when we take our eyes off Jesus, don't we? So what, we were want, what we're wanting you to do uh, during these next eight weeks is to turn your eyes upon Jesus. We're not going to be coming here with charts and all sorts of weird and bizarre theories about the end of the world or anything like that, because that's not what this book is about. This book is all about Jesus. And we want you to turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. John says there in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So for tonight in this talk, I just want you to do that. I want you to turn to see the voice. It sounds, it's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? You don't usually look at a voice. But John says, I heard a voice and I turned to see the voice. And as we turn to see the voice, we're going to ask two questions. The two questions, very simple, straightforward questions. How is the church to view her Lord? And how is... How does the Lord view his church? Those are the two questions. How are we to view our Lord? Because we have a vision of Christ here in this chapter. But how does he see us? And what does he have to say to us? So first of all then, how, how is the church to view her Lord? I don't know. If, I, I, I find myself now at my age sort of throwing out illustrations and things. And I assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I, I was just about to say, I dare say you've all heard of Rip Van Winkle. But most of you haven't, have you? <laughs> uh, Rip Van Winkle was a character in a story written by some guy in America. And uh, he, he, this character uh, just went into a deep sleep for 20 years. He fell asleep for 20 years. At the time of the, uh, uh, when, when America, uh, uh, when, when they had their war of independence. So when he fell asleep, uh, America was still uh, a British colony, and King George, uh, whatever number it was, King George was, the, was the, the king of America. But 20 years later, when he woke up, another George was in charge, George Washington. And he didn't know. He'd slept through the American Revolution. And uh, when he woke up, he started uh, kind of uh, being totally unaware of what had happened. He started whooping it up for George. But it was the wrong George. And he got himself into serious trouble. Now, I, I sometimes wonder whether we're not in danger of, doing, of making the same mistake when it comes to Jesus. Look what John says there in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> you see, this is, this is John, the disciple who Jesus loved. Uh, this is John who we're told, you know, in the Gospels that he leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper in the upper room. And now he falls at his feet as if he were dead. Things have moved on since the, since the upper room, haven't they? Look at verse 18. He laid his hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Everyone else has to say, you know, I was alive and now I'm dead. All the great figures of world history have to say that, don't they? Or we have to say that about them. But Jesus says, I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. Just think about that for a moment. All the isms that have ever held sway 
eventually become wasms, don't they? But Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, it says, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come. See, a lot has happened since Jesus walked this earth. The cross has happened, the resurrection has happened, the ascension has happened. We're not dealing now with a meek and mild Galilean teacher with nowhere to lay his head. Look at the description of him here. His countenance, we're told, is like the sun shining in its full strength. No wonder John fell at his feet. And his voice is like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Niagara Falls. No wonder John is spooked. This is the Jesus with whom we have to do tonight, here, and every night when we gather. This is the Jesus we meet when we come to church. You can't cozy up to him, John, not anymore, the way you used to. You can't reduce Christianity to a, a simplistic formula, what would Jesus do? Because we have to ask, which Jesus are we talking about? Things have moved on since the Gospels. He's no longer uh, the pale Galilean if he ever was. Of course, he never was a pale Galilean, was he? But now he is this towering, majestic figure, alive from the dead, never to die again, moving around his churches, walking amongst the, the lampstands. This is the one we meet when we come here on a Sunday night. We need to remind ourselves, we need to prepare ourselves to come to this gathering, don't we? If this is the one that we're, we're, we're going to encounter. So let's listen to him. Let's take a look at him. Uh, let's look at this, 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 this vision of Jesus that is given us here in Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to say, I want you to notice first of all, it's, it's a word picture that we've got here, isn't it? It has to be a word picture. No artist could ever paint this, this, this picture of Jesus that we've got here in Revelation chapter 1. Some have tried to do it with ridiculous uh, results. You just can't do it. You can't capture this on canvas. You can't capture it uh, in a movie. And, and neither should you try to. Let me tell you why. Uh, there's a guy called Tom Skinner. He's, he's a, a black American evangelist. And when he was growing up in Harlem, he decided that he was not going to become a Christian because every picture that he ever saw of Jesus showed a weak white man. And he says, I don't know much about this guy, but I knew he wouldn't last an hour in my neighborhood. <laughs> you see, when you, when you paint a picture of Jesus and put it in a child's story Bible, or when you make a movie, you have to choose a race to depict, don't you? You have to choose whether he's going to look uh, weak because he's on the cross, which is true, of course, but only part of uh, the truth about him. Or like a coming king, which is also true, but still only one part of, of the truth about Jesus. And, and you can't capture that on canvas or on celluloid, only in words. So what we have here tonight is a, is a word picture. And... Uh, I want us to try and sort of look at this picture, starting from the outside and working in. There's a symmetry about this picture, uh, about this description of Jesus. So let me try and show you that. First of all, the head and the face are the first and the last items that are mentioned in this picture, this word picture. The head and the face. 
His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, it says in verse 14. And in verse 16, we're told his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Who is this? This is Daniel, son of man, isn't it? If you know, the, a lot of the, as we go through the book of Revelation, we're not going to go right through the whole book, although it would be, it would be fun to do that, wouldn't it? Uh, if you were to go through the whole book of Revelation, you'll find that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is in the Old Testament. There are a lot of the, 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 the things that we find puzzling are actually there in the prophets and in the book of Daniel, for example. And, and uh, uh, the picture that we have here, this description, it's, it's Daniel, son of man. In Daniel's vision, we're told in Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man comes on the clouds of glory to the ancient of days, whose clothing is as white as snow and whose hair is white like wool, and he is given authority over all nations. That's who this is. Look at, look at, uh, look what, look says John in verse 17, in verse 7 rather, look what he says. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Now, now we usually take that to be a reference to his second coming, don't we? And it could well be a reference to his second coming. I'm not going to argue that point. But in Daniel's vision, he, he's ascending, not descending, in Daniel chapter 7. He's coming through the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And, and if that's what has happened, if that's, where, if that's who Jesus is and where Jesus is now, then it's obvious what must soon take place, isn't it? See, see but sometimes people take the book of Revelation as if it's something like Nostradamus, you know, it's a, or, or Old Moore, the Old Moore's Almanac, you know, it's predicting the future, future events. It's nothing of the sort. Yeah, there is, there are future predictions in the book of Revelation, don't deny that. But as we saw, just, you know, it, it's an unveiling of Jesus. It's telling us who Jesus is and where Jesus is. He's risen, he's ascended, he's glorified, he's seated on the throne of the universe, at the right hand of the majesty on high. If that's who Jesus is, and if that's where Jesus is, well, you don't have to be a fortune teller to figure out what's going to happen. You don't have to be, uh, you know what's going to happen next, don't you? If, if, if that's the meaning of this vision, if Jesus is Daniel's son of man who's gone through the clouds to the ancient of days and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and he's now at the right hand of God calling all the nations to himself, that's what must soon take place. That's what is happening right now in our world, isn't it? And even though the nations... Uh, conspire and the rulers of, the, of this world conspire against the Lord and his anointed. He's, he, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He'll he dash them in pieces like pottery, we're told there. Then again, working from the outside in, he, uh, we've, we've seen his, his head and his face, which showing us who he is and where he is. But then notice the eyes and the mouth working in on this word picture. Uh, sight and sound are the chief organs of communication, aren't they? And that's how the risen, ascended, glorified Christ communicates. See what it says? His eyes are like blazing fire, verse 14. Is there anything he doesn't see? And verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now the writer to the Hebrews brings all this together, doesn't he? You remember what he says in chapter 4? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. My friends, don't you realize that this is what happens when we come to church? This is the Jesus we encounter when the word is opened. Do you realize that? Who told the preacher about me? <laughs> Nobody did. It's Jesus. This is Jesus dealing with you through, through the open word. His eyes are like blazing fire. I, 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 quite often, well not quite often, but a number of times over my ministry, people have come up to me and said, who told you about me? Jesus knows things about you that I don't know. And he knows how to take his word and use it like a surgeon's scalpel to cut into you. Oh, for more preaching like that, you know. Coming to, you, sometimes we come to church and we want a nice little, you know, comfortable little talk, don't we? A little motivational talk to make us go away and have a good week. I don't want that sort of preaching. I'm fed up with that sort of preaching. We need preaching that will cut into us and convict us and point us to Christ, don't we? And again, looking at this symmetrically, we, we've, we've, we've seen his head and his face and his eyes and his mouth. Now notice his feet and his hands there. The third and fifth items. His feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And in his right hand, verse 16, he held seven stars. Now, th this speaks of stability and power. I can't help, again, but contrast uh, this with, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 of the statue with feet of clay. That's sort of entered into our vocabulary. We know what it means when we say that somebody's got feet of clay, don't we? And that's true of all human government, however impressive, however strong they may think they are. Ultimately, it is set on a base that is flawed. But his feet, the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, look at him now, his feet are of burnished brass and in his right hand he holds the seven stars. The, the seven stars could be the planets of which uh, uh, seven were known in the first century. And they believed in those days that the movement of these stars was believed to determine our destiny. But it's Jesus who holds the stars in his right hand. The stars don't control us. Even today people still read their horoscopes, don't they? <laughs> but the stars don't control us. Christ controls them, don't you see? And right there, back down in verse 20, we're told that the seven stars are actually the angels of the seven churches. And it's not, clear, it's not clear to us whether the angels are spirit beings or human beings. Angel simply means messenger. That's what the word angel means. With or without wings. The one here tonight hasn't got wings. But whatever they are, these angels of the seven churches, whatever they are, they are controlled by Jesus. That's the point. He holds them in his right hand. They are his instruments to do his will. Angels or men, planets or preachers. And then in the center of the picture, there's a voice. Do you see? Verse 15. Like the sound of many waters. There's something awesome and commanding about that sound, isn't there? Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, even before we hear what the voice has to say, we know what our response ought to be. A gossiping, mincing response to the sound of many waters is unthinkable. 
a gossiping, mincing response. <laughs> what an indictment on our churches. <laughs> that we can come and sit under the word of God and go away with that kind of response. When Jesus has been speaking to us through his word. Oh, to hear that voice in the preaching. I'm fed up with Bible talks. I can go to theological college to get a Bible talk. <laughs> I'm fed up with that sort of preaching. I don't want my more and more information downloaded into my mind. I want to hear Jesus speaking to me through his word. I want to hear this voice that sounds like the voice of many waters. So let's hear that voice. That's the second point. What does Jesus have to say? And it's going to take us eight weeks to unpack this. But as he walks amongst the lampstands, what's he concerned about? You see, the vision of chapter 1, which we've just looked at very, very briefly, and you can read it again if you want to, is in, in these next two chapters, is, it's kind of unpacked. That's what our, our friends, we're all going to be doing together, unpacking that, that vision of chapter 1. And it's downloaded in different ways, you'll notice, seven times over in chapters 2 and 3. Now, we can't stop with the details now. That's what we're going to be doing over the coming weeks. But in general terms, think of it, if you like, as... Uh, an inquiry into the state of the cause. That's what we used to call it in Wales. Here we call it a presbytery visitation. An inquiry into the state of the cause. I just like that phrase. And when Jesus inquires into the state of his cause, because it's his cause, not ours, whatever denominational label we put on it, it's his church, it's his cause. And when Jesus inquires into the state of his cause, what does he find? What does he want to know? What does he ask about? He wants to know if the lamp is still burning. He wants to know if the light is still shining, doesn't he? That's his purpose for his church in this world. It's always been his purpose for his people in this world, to be a light to the nations. To be a light that shines in a dark place, a city on a hill that cannot be hid. That's the critical issue in all seven of these churches. Is the light still shining? Emil Brunner puts it like this. The church exists for mission as a flame exists by burning. I really like that quote. The church, this church, every church, exists for mission as a flame exists by burning. And if that flame is to keep burning and not to be extinguished, three things are needed, very quickly. Affirmation, reformation, and motivation. Okay. We all need to be affirmed, don't we? Praise where praise is due. It's always good to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. And Jesus does that here, doesn't he, in these letters, as we'll see. In, in five out of seven of these churches, Jesus finds something positive to say. There are only two churches where he's got, got nothing good to say, and there are two churches where he has nothing bad to say. It's worth noting those two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both those churches are small and struggling and suffering persecution. And that's significant. See, contrary to what people think, it's not suffering and persecution that smothers the light. It's complacency and smugness and self-sufficiency, and dead orthodoxy. 
But, but if you're suffering for Jesus' sake, and there are places we know around the world where Christians are really suffering for Jesus' sake, then you'll find only sympathy from him. The church is nearest to him and dearest to him when it shares in his sufferings. Do you know what that means? That means that uh, many churches in, in what we used to call third world countries are in a far healthier state than many of our churches in the West for all the bells and whistles that we've got and the smoke machines and all the rest of it. How pathetic is that? Jesus affirms these churches for their perseverance in the face of persecution. William Carey, the pioneer missionary in India, said, I, I, can, pl I can plod. I think I've said this to you before. I can plod. That's my genius. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. See, that's what impresses Jesus, plodding. We want performers, don't we, in today's church? But Jesus is looking for plodders. They're the unsung heroes. They're the people whose names never appear in the history books. They're people like that in this congregation. And that's what impresses Jesus. That's what he's looking for. Wellington said of his troops in his day, my men are not braver than the enemy. They're just braver for five minutes longer. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what impresses him when he looks around his churches. That's what catches his eyes, his eye. People who are persevering in the face of seemingly unsurmountable, insurmountable odds. Do you see, my friends, this is a serious picture of church life, isn't it? It's not a vicarage tea party. It's not a, a praise concert. This is a life and death matter. It really doesn't matter what the world thinks about us. But it does matter what Jesus thinks. And we should be far more concerned about that than we are. It's his affirmation that counts. Does that matter? Do we look for that? Are we concerned to find out what pleases him? Not, you know, how do we compare to the church down the road? Who cares? What, is, what pleases Jesus? That's what we should be concerned about. That's what we should be coming to in, in our prayer meetings. We should be asking about. What changes do we need to make here at Soul Church in order to please him? Not to please ourselves. There's so much consumerism in today's church, isn't there? What pleases me? What suits me? And if I don't like that, I'll go there and find some... No, no, no. It's what pleases him that matters. That should be our priority. Looking for his affirmation. And that leads to the second word, reformation. Nothing changes here is really not a good slogan for the church, is it? But it is the, it is the slogan of many churches. Nothing, especially Presbyterian churches. You know, how many, what is the, you know, the joke about how many Presbyterians does it take to make, to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> we don't change anything. Nothing changes here. But you see, Jesus isn't interested in the status quo. He calls for reformation. He is the judge who stands at the door of his church. That's how John sees him here, dressed in the robes of a judge with a golden sash around his chest, standing at the door of his church. You'll see that there in, 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 in the last of these seven letters, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, in that lovely song we sang. I suspect we're going to be singing that every week for eight weeks. Revelation 3.20. And why not? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
This is the, the majestic, towering figure that we've just looked at. He's standing at the door of this church. In fact, literally, he's standing with his shoulder against the door of this church because they've shut him out and they don't realize it. Sometimes people take Revelation 3.20 like a, as if it's a gospel uh, text. It's not a gospel text. It's, it's addressed to a church, a church that has shut Jesus out. And he comes. These words are addressed to the, the Laodicean church. And Jesus is coming. He's, he's, he's coming to put that church right. He's, going to, he's coming to put his house in order. See, one of the things, if we were to go through the whole book of Revelation, one of the notes that gets struck in the book of Revelation, which we're all very familiar with and we're expecting, is the note of judgment. Because judgment is coming on the world. And Revelation really makes, us, makes that very clear to us. Judgment is coming on this world, as we shall see. But judgment begins at the house of God. That's what these letters are telling us. That's what these chapters will show us. My friends, it's not enough to be reformed. We must be always reforming. Always going back to the Bible. Always asking what needs to change. After every sermon, we need to be asking ourselves, what does Jesus want to change in my life? How does this apply to me, what I heard tonight? What does Jesus want to change in his church? Because you'll notice in all, uh, we will notice in all seven of these letters to the seven churches, Jesus has a word for the individual. It's no good saying, you know, and we're very good at doing this, why don't they do something about it? You know, the presbytery or the denomination or this invisible, those invisible faces. <laughs> why don't they do something about it? No. Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice, anyone, anyone in this congregation, if anyone hears Jesus speaking to them through these letters that we're going to be looking at, So as we unpack these seven letters, I want to say to you, if the cap fits, wear it. Make sure you wear it, won't you? Whether it's whatever it is that you're convicted of, whether it's dead orthodoxy, as it was in Ephesus, or loose living, as it was in Thyatira, or worldliness, as it was in Pergamum, or formality, as it was in Sardis, or complacency as it was in Laodicea, whatever it is that threatens the testimony of this church and causes the light of the gospel to flicker and to fade, reformation is called for. And the third thing and the last thing is this that's needed is this motivation. We need affirmation. Jesus is very good at that. We need reformation. We're called to do that. But we also need motivation, don't we? A teacher once asked a Sunday school class to sum up the book of Revelation in just one sentence. That's easy, said this rather precocious student. Jesus wins. Not even a sentence, it's just two words. <laughs> I hope you, you're not, you know, if you've come here tonight to expect some kind of amazing uh, exposition of the book of Revelation, my friend, it's as simple as that, Jesus wins. <laughs> That's what it's all about. In every one of these churches, even one as bad as Laodicea, there's always a promise to the one who overcomes. Je See, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. Jesus has already won. He's won the war, the battle is still going on, of course. But he invites us to share in his victory. That's what the Christian life is all about. 
Jesus has already won the battle, run the, won the war, and he invites us now. Well, in every one of these churches, there's a promise to the one who overcomes. And we can overcome. This book of Revelation is a hugely motivating book. Jesus wins in Christ. We are more than conquerors, aren't we? Uh, there was a, a very interesting... Um, Remember Parkinson? Or are we really getting old now? Michael, is he still alive? You think he is, isn't he? That's not him, by the way. <laughs> Although he does look very much like that. <laughs> Remember the Parkinson interviews? Well, in one of those interviews, he interviewed uh, Catherine uh, Booth, Booth, who was the granddaughter of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And she'd, uh, she, she told the story about um, uh, how once she'd, she'd been on, a, on an evangelistic mission and she'd come back. Uh, from some walk-up evangelism and a, a, when she was a young lady, and her grandfather said to her, well, Catherine, how did it go? She said, I did my best, Grandad. And William Booth, who was probably quite a formidable character, boomed at her, Catherine, your best is not good enough. In Christ, you can do better than your best. Do you believe that? I do. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And all that the world throws at us, uh, and all that's going to happen perhaps in our future, he's in control. And in him, we can overcome. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen.